Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists. Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this, our latest episode of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Sosodia. Hey, Raj. Hey, Timothy. Good to be with you again. Yes, indeed. And today, we are going to explore something called polarities with Barry Johnson. And now, Barry Johnson created the first polarity map and set of principles in 1975. So he's well known as the creator of the polarity map and principles, along with the founding partner and chairman of Polarity Partnerships. So he's been pushing and thinking about this idea for almost as long as I've been alive. And um, we're going to dig into that a little deeper on a lot of different fronts. So Barry, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. So Barry, maybe we open up a little bit with maybe you describing briefly what a polarity is, and then a little bit about your journey about how you got to this idea of polarities and, uh, and what was the fuel that, that set it off? Sure. Um, so um, I think the easiest way to describe a polarity is, um, is as uh, the two poles, if you had two poles in mind and you connected them with an infinity loop, which is like a figure eight laid on its side. And so this infinity loop, um, it as a, you know, the middle of that figure eight crosses between these two poles and the outside wraps around them. So it becomes, uh, that's what it looks like. And if you can imagine uh, a, an example of, a, of an everyday polarity is activity and rest. So if one pole was, uh, the left pole was activity and the right pole was rest, we get up in the morning, we go off and we do our work, whatever we do, we're physically and mentally active. And that would show up as the, as the upside of that left pole. So that upside of that infinity loop on the left side. Now, activity is great and essential, but if you stay active long enough and don't pay attention to rest, that infinity loop wraps around and goes to the downside of that eight laying on its side. So the downside of activity without rest is to be burned out, you know, uh, and uh, and so muscle injury, etc. So there's all sorts of downsides on that left pole. It's got an upside and a downside. When you experience the downside of a polarity, so you're at the bottom of the figure eight on the left here, and so now you move to the across between the two poles and go to the upper right, and on the upper right now you're in the upside of rest. And you get all those benefits. So you have wonderful benefits of, of rest, but it's not a solution to the burnout problem. Essentially what it is, is a necessary self-correction as you flow through this infinity loop, as long as you're alive. So when you move to rest, you get the benefits of rest, but over time that energy again flows around to the downside of rest without activity, which is essentially muscle atrophy, and, and now all of a sudden what you need to do, you get, so you get rest, you go to bed at night, uh, you get that rest, and then you get up in the morning and you, you swing back up to activity. So if you just imagine uh, flowing through that infinity loop over time, all polarities have this, this energy system that is oscillating between those two, getting the two benefits of each and also experiencing the limits of each, which causes you to make the shift. So that's how... Um, how all polarities look and work. And one other thing is that you can, a couple of things about polarities, you notice with activity and rest. The first is that you can't step outside of activity and rest and decide, am I going to do it? We're, we're living inside <laughs> activity and rest. And so, so we're doing some version of it as long as we're alive. So that's an important uh, dimension about polarities. We live in them. And the question is, at what point is it necessary to see them and intentionally leverage them? So though all of us um, have activity and rest available as a part of our life, everybody's doing activity and rest. 
but not everybody can run a marathon. If you want to run a marathon, now you have to be intentional about this polarity in very specific ways. So uh, for, for the activity side, you need to get up on a regular basis and work out more and more every workout day. But you can't just focus on working out further, you know, running further and further every workout day. You also have to get adequate downtime. So now you have to pay attention to the other pole, which you build in intentionally, you build in adequate downtime. If you over-focus on working out without adequate downtime, the muscles don't build because the muscles build on the rest cycle. So, so if you want to run a marathon, you use the available energy within activity and rest and systematically maximize both upsides and you avoid the two downsides. And that's how all polarities work. So that's a, I don't know if there are any questions about that, just as a, as a quick summary. Is that making sense to you? Perfect sense. Perfect sense. Yeah, so uh, Barry, if we can go back then to 1975 when you were at that Gestalt uh, Institute program and, and you had this flash of insight, right? And you saw this yes. as, a, as an energy system in a way. And uh, yes. please tell us about that big aha moment that changed your life and of course has, has then impacted so many others. Sure, that. sure. Well, while I was... Um, uh, while I was getting, I was getting training as a Gestalt therapist because I wanted to, I wanted to learn more about how systems work, so I could uh, be involved in in having organizations and communities um, work well for everyone. And my question was, how do you do that? How do you bring about positive change? And one of the things that I learned in Gestalt was about the paradoxical theory of change. And the paradoxical theory of change is that if you want to make a change. The most effective way to make a change is not to try to be who you aren't, but to let yourself be who you are as the base, and then you will move into the change. And so I was aware of that, and I was uh, seeing a client for the first time. Uh, she came into me. She knew me from the community. I didn't know her. And I asked her, what, uh, you know, what brings you here? And she said, well, I want to be more like you. <laughs> now one does not have to be Sigmund Freud or Carl Jung to know that this is loaded, right? So, so I said to her, well, what does that mean to be more like me? And she said, well, you're making a contribution in the community. She knew about my activities. So she knew me, I didn't know her. And uh, you seem to know what you want and you seem to go after it. And, uh, and so I want to be more like that. And I said, well, I said, I, I understand how you might see that in me. How do you see yourself? She said, oh, she said, I don't, I, I'm not making any contribution. Um, I don't, I'm not clear about even what I want to do. If I were clear, I don't know if I'd have enough gumption to go ahead and do it. And so I'm, I'm sitting, looking at her and realizing um, in Gestalt therapy, one of the things you do is you use yourself as a resource. So I'm thinking about her description of me. And I said to her, we'll call her Anne. I said, Anne, you know, your description of me, I said, it's almost like we, we could put the description you have of me on one side of my chair. There's stuff about me that we're not talking about that could go, that is not so, <laughs> doesn't look so good, that would be on the other side of my chair. And I said, it also, it looks like your description of yourself could go on one side of your chair, but there's something about you that we're not looking at that might be on the other side of, of your chair. So now we had these four points of, of reference, right? And, and I said, if you could just go from, from the side of your chair where you're, you know, really not feeling good about yourself to how you see me, you would have already done it. My hunch is that what's keeping you from your desire to be like me is what's on the other two parts, the other two sides of our chair. So, so what we had was um, her seeing herself in negative terms, what's wrong with me, and her seeing, she had the problem. Problem with me is all of these things. And the solution is to look like Barry, right? <laughs> but what was missing is the a positive dimension of herself as a platform to move from. And also there was some negative stuff about me that, um, that wasn't being talked about. So that's how all change efforts, my desire to make a change in the community is that all change efforts needs to, is a paradoxical change process. First, recognize the upside of where you're moving from and, uh, and, and be aware that, that there is a downside where you're headed that you can move through in order to get that upside. And after that process has been done, now the objective is always to get both upsides. How can she be both a good giver and a good receiver? 
in the process. So that's that was the first polarity map, um, and I've been working on it since then. So let's uh, let's zoom out a little bit and uh, and look at why the absence of this understanding is a is a challenge and a big problem in the world. If you look at the biggest challenges that we face, whether it's in politics or business or even in our families and personal lives, uh, what is the absence of polarity intelligence or understanding or recognition? Now, what kind of problems is that creating in the world for us? We talk about polarization, of course, you know, in our society. Yes, um, uh, the the uh, the absence of a, of a polarity awareness um, shows up. Uh, the two places it shows up most in all parts of society is in resistance to change, which she was experiencing, her own resistance to making the change she wanted to make, and the other is in um, is in polarization between two groups. Um, and so uh, an example of, of resistance to change, I was working with a, with a, uh, a multinational uh, corporation. You'd recognize them if I told you their name, but um, I was asked to present to their top 200 people they were bringing in from around the world. And in, their, uh, in a conversation I was having with them before, you know, it was a few months before I was going to come and present to this group. I had a half a day with them on polarity thinking. They told me that that the theme was leading through values, and I said, "Well, that's terrific because values tend to come in pairs. So we would look at, you know, we could look at leadership, we can look at values, and and that's going to be, you know, a great way to start our that workshop." And I'm at this point, I've been on the phone with the chief operating officer, the chief learning officer, and the head of the design team for this this four day gathering on leadership, and so. He says, "Well, wait a minute. You're are you you're saying that values come in pairs?" And I said, "Yes, sir. I think so." So when I work with organizations, if they're just creating their values, I encourage them to put them in pairs. If they are, uh, if they already have a list of values, then I look at those values with them, and and see if if they've got one value in the list that shows up. Like for example, if they had activity as a value, I'd look for another value like rest. Not because I've got anything against activity, but I know that activity without rest is going to be problematic for them. And he said, wait a minute, if you're going to be messing with our values in front of our top 200 people, I want to know what you do with it. So I'm sending you our values right now. I said, okay. So they sent the values and one of their values was autonomous business units. Now, if you're located in 46 countries, providing some autonomy for your business units makes a lot of sense for sure. So I. Uh, I'm looking at this, and I, I, he said, what, well, what, are you, what are you seeing? And I said, well, I noticed you've got autonomous business units, but you don't have anything like integrated or coordinated uh, you know, business units. There's nothing about integration of this autonomous business units. And, and it was, there were only five values, so it was pretty clear that nothing like that showed up. And he said, so what do you make of that? And I said, well, your organization is already experiencing or will experience the following dysfunctions. Excess competition between the units, uh, silos, um, uh, redundancy, uh, you know, lack of system-wide coordination, uh, lack of shared vision. And, uh, and I said, you're going to experience uh, these kind of functions, which would be the downside of over-focusing on autonomous business units to the neglect of focusing on integrated business units. So uh, I said, and then what you're going to do, some point you're going to call that a problem. The problem with us is we're too siloed. Right. Um, and so what you're going to do is you're going to bring all your business unit heads together and your executive team, and you're going to agree to move towards a more coordinated, integrated, centralized, coordinated system. I said, and then you're not going to go there. Now, there's silence on the phone. Right. <laughs> and so I break the silence after, you know, less than a minute. I say, hello. And the chief operating officer comes back with a very gruff voice. And he says, who have you been talking to? And I said, I haven't been talking with anybody. I just know how values work and how polarities work. And so this is actually pretty predictable. And he, he says to me, he said, well, I understand how, because we had autonomous business units and we don't have centralized or integrated business units in our values, that you'd come up with the silos and the, and the excess competition, et cetera. And I understand how you'd come up with the, you know, the upside, which would be coordinated, integrated system. Uh, and I said, but did I hear you correctly when you said we weren't going to walk our talk? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, well, I want to know how you knew that because I held that meeting two years ago and we agreed to the person that that's where we were going to go. 
and we have hardly moved at all in two years. Now, I want to know how you knew that we weren't going to walk our talk. And I said, well, that's why I'm coming to spend, you know, four hours with you and, and the rest of the group. So what we did when we got to that, uh, to that meeting, and by the way, let me just, let me just share, share how I knew that was, that was going to be the case, because I knew a couple of things. One is that all of us are raised to be problem solvers and to use or thinking to make hard choices between this or that. So I knew they were going to approach this with or thinking. I knew they were also going to use, see it as a problem to solve. And the third thing I knew is that they were going to use gap analysis in their change effort. Gap analysis has three parts to it. A problem, what's wrong with the present, a solution for the preferred future, and a strategy to get there. Now, what's missing is if that movement is actually from the downside of one pole to the upside of another of a polarity, what's missing is the other upside and downside. And the fear, remember Anne now, the fear of the downside was what was going to get in the way of their moving to the upside. And so that, uh, that I could predict. So when we got together, we had table groups of six, 200 people in table groups of six, and they had um, autonomous business units and integrated business units as the two poles, and then they all generated upside content. What would be the upside if we did a good job of focusing on, on autonomous business units? What would, be the, what would be the benefits, all the results? Remember the list I made with, with, you know, with Ann? What are the lists here? What are all the upsides of autonomous business units? And what are all the upsides of integrated business units? So we generate that content. Then we say, how would we know early that we're getting into the downside of over-focusing on autonomy or over-focusing on system integration? And they generated that. And then we come up with action steps. What are we doing or can we do first to make sure we hold on to our autonomy and our business units. Then what can we do to also include integration of our business units? And that broke that deadlock in that organization. And they now became intentional about doing, about doing uh, both of those things. So that's an example of, of the, the change uh, dimension and where the resistance from change comes from and how you can free that up by looking at it as a polarity map. One of the things I find really interesting about that, Barry, is that when you start introducing the um, the and thinking versus the or thinking, uh -huh. and then you put it in the in the in a in a context of what I call you know complexity and problem solving, you know. So when the world is complicated, mm -hmm. we often figure we can do some kind of linear problem solving. <laughs> yeah. But when it's really complex, you know, and, and it means we have to manage between these uncertainties, I find polarities are really helpful in getting people to shift a little bit. And I'd love you to comment a little bit about that, that, you know, in a world yeah. of complexity. <laughs> um, yes. Um, so uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the more complex something is, the more helpful it is to see an underlying pattern in the complexity. Um, that's why, for example, um, if you if, if if it's nighttime and you are escaping uh, slavery in the south and trying to go north, you travel at night uh, and you travel at night and you look up at the stars and you see a pattern. You see the Big Dipper and you see the end of the Big Dipper. Four times the end of that Big Dipper points you right to the North Star. So. So, of course, the whole universe of stars is very complex. But if you want to know where North is, find the pattern, which is called the Big Dipper. And now it'll point you, it'll indicate where the North Star is. What a polarity uh, lens is, it helps you appreciate a pattern. It's an energy pattern that's at play in the system. And so identifying uh, polarities helps you appreciate uh, within the complexity a pattern and and one such set of patterns are the polarity energy systems that will be at play. In this case, it was the energy around wanting to have autonomy for the business units for all sorts of good reasons and wanting to have system integration, which is why we centralize, why we need to pay attention to both centralized for coordination and decentralized for responsiveness. If you see centralized and decentralized, if you see them as an either or, are we going to choose centralized or decentralized? From that point on, you're in trouble because you've misdiagnosed the energy system in which you sit as if you could do one or the other, and it will cost you. Um, 
dearly as an organization to misdiagnose. It doesn't make anybody a bad person, but it can make you dysfunctional as this organization was for two years trying to just shift poles. Um, when when at, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the head level, they understood that's what they needed to do. But at the gut level, the culture was one that loved their decentralized orientation and focus. That's why people flock to this organization. They love the decentralization. So at a gut level, they were sabotaging what at the head level they knew they needed to do. So that tension is right inside the person and inside the culture. And it's a powerful tension. Beautiful. So, uh, two questions about that, Barry. So when you have those polls, right, do you need to be neutral between them? Or can you say we are biased in favor of decentralization because we want our people to be empowered, but we want to avoid the downsides of that. And therefore, we're going to be extra vigilant on that, right? Or do we yeah, always have to say this 50-50 of... of um, no, no, you know, it, uh, yeah, great question. No, it can be, it can be um, 10 to 1 uh, in terms of energy. It can be extremely lopsided. However, you need to pay enough attention to the one that gets the one to keep you from getting into the downside of the one you're focusing on. You're over-focusing it, right? So, so we, we really focus on, on this, but we need to pay attention to, to this as well. Um, so um, uh, that's, that's really very important. You don't have to spend the same amount of energy, time, or money on both polls. But what you have to do is you have to spend enough on each poll, enough time and energy in order to make sure that you're gaining the benefits of each poll. And that's why the early warnings are so important because they let you know early, but I've overfocused on this to the neglect of this. Um, so uh, yeah, you've got a lot of flexibility once you know what you've, uh, that you've got a polarity. Now behind you uh, in the cabinet there, I see the uh, Ardhanareshwar from India. Yes. I think a good symbol of what we're talking about here, right? That's the half male, half female God. Yes. That represents the, that sort of uh, the, the wholeness, right? So if you could talk about how that fits into uh, this framework. Um, yes. So the, the understanding of our interdependency, I mean, we are, um, we live in an interdependent universe. Everything is interdependent, right? Now, when you when you talk about a polarity, you're talking about the, the the most elemental form of that interdependence, which is two. That's as small as you can get interdependency. We're talking about these two things, right? And that need each other over time. A polarity is an interdependent pair, that the two parts of which just need each other over time. And and this shows up in a Dharanari, for example, it shows up in the masculine and feminine feminine. We need masculine and feminine. We need egg and sperm, period. You know, it, do, it doesn't matter whether you like it, whether you think it's a good idea or a bad idea, you know, you need it. We need to both inhale and exhale. It comes as a set and, and you know, we have to maximize how we uh, use them. Uh, so in, in, uh, in religious traditions, virtually all faith community traditions, there's a fundamental polarity um, around justice and mercy. So, uh, so if we focus on uh, if we focus on justice, uh, that's Im that's important, and we need to focus on mercy. On the justice, on the mercy side, the message is that the Creator of all of this loves us. We're loved unconditionally, just as we are. We don't have to be better. We don't have to be different. We are loved. Period. And we're accountable for our actions, for what we do and don't do in life. So, how do we? How do we both be accountable for our actions and be loved unconditionally? Well, that's a polarity tension. Uh, and how we do both impacts um, how, how, um, how much happiness we experience in our life and how much happiness we contribute to the planet. Um, so, yes. So, Barry, when you think about some of the big polarities and big system polarities that, that we need to be thinking about is we want to try to shift business from being seen as this greedy, sometimes um, you know, um, rapacious kind of entity to something where business can be a force for good and uh, create value for multiple stakeholders. What do you see as some of the big sort of system polarities that we need to start 
addressing or thinking about to make that kind of shift? Um, well, the answer the answer to that is uh, is right with us here with uh, with Raj in terms of uh, both of his books, uh, Firms of Endearment and Conscious Capitalism. I'd like to share a story about that. Uh, um, uh, uh, an associate of mine who teaches polarity thinking, uh, Bina Sharma, did some work with Natura in Brazil. And, uh, and she was introducing polarity thinking to them and they really liked it. And they asked Bina if she could arrange for me to come down and spend some time with them. And so uh, it was a gracious offer. So Bina said, Barry, can you come on down here? They'd like to talk with you. So, so I flew into Brazil and as I arrived in the, in the, uh, the car at the front of their main office building, uh, the woman who was in charge of organization development, uh, she had read my, my first book uh, called Polarity Management, and uh, she had learned from Bina the basics about polarity thinking. So as we're approaching the building, she, we pause and she points to the wall, the huge wall uh, just alongside the main doors and uh, written in Portuguese, she wanted me to know what it said. And she said, Barry, what that says is being well and well-being. And being well means that, that we are fiscally sound company. Um, and well-being means we take care of our employees, our community, and the environment. And she smiled and she said, I think we already know something about polarities, Dr. Johnson. <laughs> I said, absolutely. I just loved it. Um, so a lot of a lot of organizations intuitively um, understand that you need you need to do both things. A lot of leaders understand polarities. Leaders, uh, effective leaders, know they need to be both clear and flexible. If they're clear without being flexible, they're seen as rigid. If they're flexible without being clear, they're seen as wishy-washy. So the question is, how can I be both clear and flexible? That will make me an effective leader. There are a lot of effective leaders who are both clear and flexible, who never heard anything about polarity thinking or dilemma or paradox, but in their life experience, they learn that if I can be both clear and flexible, I'm better off. So what we're bringing with, with the polarity lens is a way to appreciate how that phenomena looks and works so that the leaders who already understand you need to be clear and flexible can, can introduce that to the next generation that they're mm. teaching. But actually one of the things that makes you a good leader is you need to be both clear and flexible. And here's how you can see that on a polarity map. But the, the getting back to, to what is one of the fundamental dimensions that is very important is around, we can take care of our organization and its shareholders and we can take care of the people, the community in which we live, and the environment in which we sit. We can do both and, um, and, and that's a fundamental one, which, which uh, Raj, with his research for firms of endearment, was able to document that research-wise. It's not just about, you know, what I'm saying is that you learn it intuitively. You can also research and ask if, you're, if you were to identify companies that were the best investment over the over long haul and try to find out what are the attributes they have in common. And you discover that, well, those that seem to be, uh, you know, the best investment over the long haul are organizations that are, that are intentionally doing more than just taking care of their bottom line or their shareholders. They're also paying attention to their employees, their community, the environment. So this, they're, they're doing both and, and, um, and they're called firms of endearment. And it, it becomes conscious and capitalism. Uh, and so that's that fundamental polarity. Uh, I've, I, was, I, was, I loved <laughs> reading Firms of Endearment because it reinforced you know, what, I had, what I was playing with since 75. It's like, oh, isn't this great? Somebody's doing research to demonstrate the truth of this. So that's what caused me to be very uh, appreciative of Raj. Uh, I think that's well articulated in terms of the, the challenge in business. And I love that shareholders and stakeholders and how do we sort of drive that further well you know i'm also fascinated by the you know uh, let's get political for a moment you know there are some polarities that are sort of showing up let's say in the u.s uh right now and when people come to you and say oh we're a polarized society um what's your instinct or your reaction on that um 
Uh, well, yes, we we have we have been since the beginning, since polarities have existed from the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. But the que- the question is is about how do we deal with that energy that is in tension between two poles, and we um, and so there's a couple of things, a couple of important polarities here. And one of the most fundamental ones is claiming power and sharing power. If we claim power without sharing it, it becomes an abuse of power. Um, And so we need to be able to both claim power and share power. If we don't, um, we become abusive with it. Um, And this is what dictatorships look like. This is what the invasion, uh, you know, the recent invasion looks like with Putin um, not being able to both claim power and share power. This is what dictatorship looks like. Now, democracies as an alternative form of governance are much better suited to leverage polarities because if you have, if you focus on one pole of a polarity um, over time, without focusing on the other pole, you're going to get the downside of that pole over time. Well, if you have a democracy, you have a way to self-correct you can elect some new leaders and shift polls, right? It's like, um, you know, it's the economy stupid, which is what, you know, what Bill Clinton was talking about. It's like, well, we had, you know, President Bush had had, fo- had done a great job in terms of militarily, um, you know, in terms of international affairs. He had done a great job and he was focusing on that. But everybody in the United States was, had shifted their focus to it's about the economy. How are we doing at home? What's that like? And Bill Clinton was able to say, you know, I'm all about making sure that this economy works for all of us. And the people were saying to Bush, actually, the country's psyche has shifted from the international focus to the domestic focus. And if you don't shift there, you're going to lose the election. He didn't shift enough. He lost the election. But the nice thing about a democracy is if you've overfocused on one poll, like international focus, and you want to self-correct to the domestic focus, you can do it by just having an election. But what happens if you've got a dictator who's running the country and that dictator has preferred a poll and you want that dictator to shift polls? Anybody who opposes the dictator's poll preference disappears. So the country is stuck in a more and more vicious cycle and the dictator gets what he's afraid of. Putin is afraid of of NATO being allied against him? Can you think of NATO ever being more allied against him that has happened now, right? So what we do out of our fear to try to hold on to one pole of a polarity, our fear of the downside of the other pole gets us locked into getting what we're afraid of. Um, and that, so that's, that's how that works. So, so democracy, effective democracy, is a much better governance arrangement to deal with the polarities in that, in that country, in that society. So, Barry, do we always we we, say, we tend to swing between extremes, right? We go from one pole to the other and back and forth. And I think the the impact of this understanding is that we don't need to be doing that, or certainly we can have much narrower, you know, oscillations in a way. Yeah. But we can also elevate, right? So, if you think about again, capitalism, socialism, you know, why did that whole divide happen in the world? I think it was because of an excessive focus on individual. Uh, individual sort of uh, interests, right, and uh, and uh, using workers and others as a means to that end. So the abuses of that then led to unions and led to Marxism and then led to socialism and communism ultimately, right? So that arose in response to this. Now, how do we get past this? What is the enduring appeal of that side of the argument is, is, is as they say, it's decency. Right, socialism promises decency. It unfortunately hasn't been able to deliver that really, but it promises that there's a certain basic level of human dignity that can be preserved. And on the capitalism side, we promise dynamism. That's kind of became the default you know, value, and it does deliver on that. Right, with creative destruction, and we're sort of forced to make a choice. Say, yeah, do you want? We we can't live without dynamism. We know that we need innovation. We need change. Uh, but then we say we also crave decency, but we need to pick one or the other. And I think that's, I think the, to me, the great appeal of conscious capitalism, it, it promises greater dynamism, not just the same level of dynamism that capitalism. Yes. yes. Greater dynamism with, with true decency, not just, you know, uh, distributing handouts to people. Right? Exactly. So dynamism and decency is another, it's a, it's a great description of, of, of a fundamental polarity. And, 
And the what happens, for example, when you when you look at the Russian Revolution, um, was was going after that focus on on the collective and basics for everyone, and you could actually, from a polarity perspective, you could anticipate the breakup of the Union uh, at the Soviet Union at the time of the Russian Revolution. Now it took three generations to get there, but in fact, the cycle though the cycle time was long, you can see it as a polarity where um, it you made that shift. Uh, so from from uh, over focus on free, on on uh, you know freedom essentially the freedom of a, of a few to run the country and gross disproportionality and gross inequality that drive towards equality and comradeship um, was a natural self correction from the downside of what was happening with with the czarist regime and all the suffering that was going on but it wasn't a solution. It was a necessary self-correction in an ongoing oscillation. And what happened over time is that became oppressive. And so now you have the Soviet Union breaking up. Why? Because people were wanting to reclaim freedom. And so the, so the reclaim was the breakup of the Soviet Union. Um, and it doesn't mean that the Russian Revolution was a mistake. The Russian Revolution was a necessary self-correction with all sorts of suffering, but it was a natural self-correction in an ongoing oscillation between, uh, you know, what you talk about dynamism and decency or, or freedom and equality, uh, those tensions are there and um, they did it dictatorially, uh, which uh, created an oppressive, uh, you know, that's the oppressive side of the collective, um, lack of loss of individual freedom and initiative and entrepreneurship. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Well, you know, Barry, building off that, I mean, another another polarity is sort of often used is purpose and profit. And yeah. I, I think that the, you know, at least in my experience and in, in our experience here in conscious capitalism has been that when you think of it as an and versus an or, then you get more meaning and you get more profit. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's something yeah. about making that connection that not only makes that loop there uh, and avoids the downsides, but it actually, as, as Raj says, elevates things. You know, it, it takes you to another level. This is, yeah, this is this is exactly what you're saying, Timothy. The, um, if you think about inhaling and exhaling as a polarity, right? We need to do both. Um, um, but you don't say, well, inhaling is great and exhaling is great. Let's do some compromise in the middle. Try that sometime, right? It, it, it does not work. If you want to inhale deeply, exhale deeply. So, so once you appreciate that inhaling and exhaling is a polarity, you don't argue about whether you're going to compromise about that. No, no. You learn to inhale deeply. You learn to exhale deeply. You're actually, uh, you're actually accentuating both poles more. And, and that's, that supports you in your ability to run, in your ability to run a marathon. You, you have, you're now enhancing that capacity, that deep inhalation, exhalation, and your whole system is now uh, using fresh oxygen in a way and converting that into the kind of, you know, the energy that you need to move ahead. So it's absolutely true about polarities. It is not about compromise in between. It is about maximizing both, which lifts the whole system towards what we call the greater purpose at the top. Um, and so that's, that's, always, uh, that's always true. And it is also always true that if you overfocus on one to the other, it will undermine the system radically, not slightly, but radically. Well, you know, Barry, in, in, in the U.S., especially, and I think in society generally, we've had the dominance of men. Yes. Uh, every societal institution in the U.S., it was kind of written into our documents, right? It was uh, yep. men could not vote. They could not own property. So yeah. we were a very hyper-masculine society. Yeah. And 100 years ago, women got the right to vote and so forth. And I think if you start to look at now and the rise of women, there was a book some years ago by, I think, Hannah, Hannah some, Rosen, maybe. And the book had a banner title called The End of Men. And then it had a smaller subtitle called And the Rise of Women. <laughs> and she was pointing to something that is happening, but why do men have to end in order for yeah. women to rise? And I think that's that's the key to what you just mentioned, right? Exactly. That's together, right? Exactly. And that that title is an interesting example of how we bring or thinking into our problem solving. Um, and that is that um, in, in that book talks about claiming power essentially without sharing power. But in fact, um, if you look at the, the, um, the suffragette movement, uh, the, 
the um, the effort by marginalized to claim power that that they have lost by the dominant culture, whoever the dominant culture is, right? So, um, dominant culture, men across the planet. Historically, men have been the dominant culture. Women have been marginalized by those by us. Um, when women are are asking for the right to vote, are demonstrating for the right to vote, they are using voting as a power mechanism. They're trying to claim power. Now, it it is it. My hunch is it would be the rare woman who would be assuming that we want to get the right to vote and we want to disavow men being able to vote. Right. That's, that's that's not it at all. Yeah. It is about no. I I want to have the vote, so you know, I want to claim power in order to share it. Now, this when when we look at major change efforts in across the planet, if it's a revolution, it's claiming power without sharing. It's off with the leader's head, right? Now, what what um, uh, De Klerk and Mandela uh, did in South Africa was different, mm -hmm. right? The, the the what what needs to happen is that. The marginalized and those of us from the dominant culture need to actually form an ally partnership with the marginalized in which supports them in claiming power in order to share it. It's not claiming power over, which would be an abuse of power. And then you just have a revolution and you just install, you know, it's like the Tutu and Hutsi where, where you had, you know, a genocide happening because of the abuse of power for so long that when the shift took place, it was a bloody revolution and a genocidal effort. Um, so this happens, you know, regardless of color, regardless of where you are on the planet, um, the potential for being extremely abusive in the claiming power is there. But from a polarity perspective, what you're trying to do is claim power and share it. So when they, when uh, black South Africans got the right to vote, since there was, since they were the majority population, of course, you know, Mandela was elected, right? Now, when Mandela was elected, they did not take over all the businesses. Um, they did not um, take over all the land. They did not go on the land and kill landowners, um, and you know which happened in other parts of, of Africa, as you know. You know, with that a revolutionary take, people who were claiming power without sharing it, they instead claimed power. We've got the right. We've got the vote. What we're saying to you is, you can continue to own this business. We're not going to nationalize it. We're not going to take it over, as the black majority voters here. We're not going to take it over. And we're telling you that, that your company needs to pay attention to who it has in its leadership positions um, because it's not okay with us as the people who are who have the power right now of a vote. It's not okay with us for you to continue to have a company with only black, with only white men at the top. We're not taking it over, but we're saying, you know, this needs to change. Now that's a, it's a entirely different conversation. You're actually in conversation um, and you're trying to figure out how do you do that? Now, how do you make that shift? That's a great question. But the assumption is that you can claim power and share power. And that's the type of revolution that that uh, I'm interested in uh, creating between in this interface between dominant culture and marginalized cultures in our planet. And I, I think it was brilliant the way they brought in both truth and reconciliation, right? Yes. Just reconciliation would not be enough. And just truth could then lead to sort of the you know the vindictiveness or justice mindset. Yes, absolutely, and that's and that is an example of the justice and mercy polarity. Truth is the justice, and and a reconciliation is the mercy. How do we do that? Just coming out of it's no accident that Desmond Tutu was in charge of that, coming out of a faith tradition, in which you had both of these things: a loving God and people being held accountable. You know, it's like how do you do that? Truth and reconciliation at the national level is the best historical example we have of intentionally holding people accountable and uh, showing mercy. Now, Barry, how would we uh, recognize, because not everything is a polarity, there are some things that are just a problem to be solved, right? So how do we recognize when we're dealing with a polarity versus uh, just a problem? Um, that's a great question. Uh, the first thing I'd like to say is that either or thinking and both and thinking are themselves a polarity. So we're not talking about letting go of, of, you know, of problem solving, problem solving and or thinking we need to make choices. You know, we, we, we do that all the time. That's very essential. Sometimes people talk with me, they come back to Barry, I got it. We just need to move to and thinking and stop this or thinking. I want to be clear. That's not what I'm saying. 
<laughs> I'm saying that or thinking is absolutely essential in basic problem solving, and it needs to be supplemented with and thinking. So that's that's the first point. Um, the the other point is that is that when you're when you're the way that polarities show up often is in the form of resistance to change um, or uh, some sort of a chronic tension. Since polarities can't be destroyed, um, they just stay with you as long as the system is alive. For example, any system of two people or more will be working with the centralized, decentralized polarity as long as they're around. Now they'll do it more or less well. They may go under if they don't do it very well, but as long as they're as long as they're around, they will be dealing with that. Um, and and so um, the when a polarity when you experience a chronic issue. When I go into an organization, I ask them what's going on right now. And I ask them two different two different questions to get a diagnosis. Um, what are the important issues that you're dealing with right now? And um, and if the more chronic they are, the better. So if have you been dealing with this issue for the last ten years, for the last twenty years? The longer they've been dealing with it, the more we're probably honing in on some underlying polarities because they're not being solved because polarities are inherently unsolvable. So that's one thing. The other thing is they may be engaged in some kind of a change effort. And when they, when they are involved in a change effort, the polarity of stability and change will be there. The question is, what are we gonna hold on to that's the best of the past and present? And what are we gonna do to generate new newness and, and, and creativity? And so that, um, that dimension will be there and when we look for the polarity, what we're uh, what we're looking for um, is an interdependency, uh, both of which need each other over time. Uh, and so we ask that question: um, Do we do we will we need to have some sort of centralized coordination twenty years from now? Will we need to be able to decentralize to be responsive and close to the customer twenty years from now? If yes, it's probably wrapped around a polarity. So, Barry, this has been fascinating, and I'm. Um... I'm curious, what 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 was in your journey? What 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 about what part of your life brought you to this kind of thinking and this kind of adventure you've been on, of uh, of exploring polarities and their principles? Um, well, I uh, I was raised in a small small town in northern Wisconsin, about six thousand people, all white, and um, I uh, during when I went to college in, in a small college that was almost all white in, in Wisconsin, northern Wisconsin, Wisconsin State University, Eau Claire. Um, uh, I at the summertime I started working at, at at a camp in upstate New York for kids from low income neighborhoods in New York, and I got fascinated by that. And so I went to Union Seminary. I thought from age thirteen to twenty six I was going to be a a minister, and so I went to Union Seminary, but I wanted to understand what life was like in the urban poor, where these kids were coming from at this camp that I had been working at during my summers of college. So I found out there was a, what was called a secular internship, and so uh, in which we lived in East Harlem, took a secular job, and sat in on everything that was going on in the community. You know, a local control of schools, the civil rights movement was going on, the war in Vietnam was going on. This was in that 1965 to 1970, I ended up uh, living in East Harlem for five years. And I got involved in, in a lot of protests. I mean, my first civil rights activity was in 1963 at the, where Dr. King gave his I Have a Dream speech. And, and I've been involved in demonstrations ever since, and they were fast and furious going on. I kept dropping out of seminary to be involved in one demonstration or another, uh, because there was a lot of, there was a lot of inhumanity going on. And I was, my face was right in it because I was living there in East Harlem and uh, young men I was playing football with on a Saturday were being drafted to go to Vietnam. So, so in that whole process, after five years, I was just looking at myself and, uh, and my wife, Carol said to me, you know, we've been, we've been living here in East Harlem for five years. We got two kids. Normally seminary takes three years. What, um, you know, how, how much, credits have you got here? You know, where are you in your seminary education? And I said, I don't have a clue. I looked, I found out I had one year's worth of credits after five years. And she said to me, maybe your ministry is more about what you have been doing the past five years than what you think you're going to do when you finish graduate from seminary. At that point, that was 1969. I decided, I think you're right, but I don't want to just keep protesting things that don't work for the rest of my life. I need to, I need to engage in a study to try to find out how we can help systems that work really well for everyone, 
rather than just protesting it. And that's what led me to leave seminary, to move to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and to get trained as a Gestalt therapist. And when I met Anne, so I was involved in this for five years before I met Anne. When I met Anne, I thought this is the key to making a positive change in any level of system I can imagine. And that, so that's evolved now since 75 to now in a, a clearer and clearer appreciation for how to create systems that work for everyone. And um, I'm still protesting. Um, uh, and, uh, but my primary work is on working with, uh, with any organization that's interested or any government that's interested in how can we create a system that works uh, well for everybody. Um, and, uh, and so uh, that's why I'm in and it gives me energy every morning. Well, speaking of which, Barry, I know you've been using the phrase the sixth discipline uh, to describe polarity thinking, and I think it's an apt one. And I think this is one of those things like systems thinking that is missing in the world by and large, and certainly in our education systems, uh, and, and is really behind all the dysfunctions that we face. It's the absence of systems thinking, it's the absence of understanding polarities. And just like in a magnet with two poles, you know, they can either repel each other or you can harness that to actually generate electricity. Yes, positive energy in the world. And I think that's what uh, that's what you're teaching us. So thank you very much for a fascinating conversation and for uh, the nearly 50 years of uh, incredible work that you have done on this. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's been a great conversation. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us. And on whatever channel you happen to be listening to this podcast, please, if you liked it, hit the subscribe button. If you'd like to leave Raj and I a note, please go to our website, theconsciouscapitalists.com, where there is a place where you can leave Raj and I any of your comments. Thank you again, Barry, and thank you to our producers at Tech Sounds. And Raj, what else would you like to say thank you for? I'd also like to thank the uh, Conscious Enterprise Center at Technological de Monterey, where I am a faculty member now. Uh, for being a supporter of this uh, of this podcast. Thank you and we'll see you next week. Bye.